Awesome. Thanks, guys. It's like, yeah, you can pray for me. I'm going to be doing my very first lock-in next Friday. And they're like, yeah, go ahead. I'm glad you guys are cheering. Like, man, I'm, I like to go to bed at 8 o'clock. It's p.m., so it's an intercession this way, please. I am Pastor Anthony, like she said. They left the doors open at Vine, so I am here again this morning with you. It's a little joke. I'm happy to be continuing the sermon on what is truth. Guys, I love this series. Last week, we talked about where we were culturally with truth, and I think the overall point was truth's not doing so hot in our culture, and I'm going to recap that just slightly, but today I get to talk about what does it mean that Jesus is the truth? Here is what I'm not going to do, and I've, I've opened up all three sermons this way. They've all been a little different, but this has been the same because this is something that irks me. You tell me if it irks you too. Somebody says something like, Usually it's somebody that's been in the church their whole life, right? I don't know what the question is, but Jesus is the answer, right? Or you have like these real problems in your life, right? Like you've, you've got a real hurt, a real heartache, something that's really not going away. You can't see past it. And you talk to someone about it, and they just give you this super spiritual look, and they say, Jesus is the answer. And you just, you just want to give them a quick one. You know, like, is it allowed? Like, just the right hand of fellowship, right in the cheek, you know? And it's like, because that doesn't cut it, right? It just doesn't. It might be true, and it is true. We're going to talk this morning about how it is true that Jesus is the truth. But we need to talk about how and what that means so that we don't seem flippant and snotty. Does that make sense? All right, let's do this. First, let's recap last week. I built my message last week really around the idea of this quote by a philosopher named Michel Foucault. And uh, he took a bunch of acid and went out to the desert, and he laid down on a cliff, and he had an experience, man, and he told the guys that he was with, the stars are raining down on me, the sky has exploded, and here's the mind-blowing part, I know this is not true, but it is the truth. And the T was capitalized in the original quote. So he's saying, I know with my rational brain that I've just taken a bunch of mind-altering substances right? I know that the sky hasn't literally exploded and like I'm not being hit with a barrage of celestial bodies right now, right? But my experience tells me I am. So we're going to go with that. That is now the capital T truth because I'm experiencing it, even though I know it's not actually true. Is that weird? But this kind of embodies the postmodern soup that we live in right now. We talked about six audacious claims that our postmodern culture makes last week at Vine. Can I just run through those real quick? Excellent, here we go. Number one, our culture, postmodernism is really what I'm talking about. It says you can't ever really know stuff. You can know stuff according to you, and I can know stuff according to me, but we can't ever really objectively know stuff. And you better not claim that you know stuff because, well, that's just, we should laugh at you. That's just silly and arrogant. How could you ever say that you could know something for sure? You can't know stuff. Number two, I get to decide the meaning of stuff. Since we can't really ever know stuff anyway, well, my opinion kind of trumps anything else because it's my opinion. You know, and you see this in art. We have a great painting, and they ask questions like, what does this painting mean to you? You read an amazing poem, and they ask, what does this poem mean to you? You read the Bible. Come on. And it's, What does this mean to you? Not what does this mean? We've moved away from that. 
Now it's centered right here in my experience and my opinions. This is where we are. Number three, there is no grand story to life. This thing we call existence, there's no meta-narrative is the fancy term, right? Because if there's something that I'm saying is the controlling story, the beginning and the middle and the end, the plot to all existence, if I dare say that, then friends, I have just become an oppressor because I am forcing my opinion on you, right? It's very strange, but you're not allowed to have a meta-narrative in a postmodern culture. You're not allowed to claim one besides, how dare you, you can't know stuff. Did we forget that? Number four, since we can't know stuff, we can decide what's true and what's not. If you have the power and the authority or the influence, you make truth. You don't discover truth. You know, we talked a lot about where we're at with, you know, people are like, oh, so-and-so is being censored on social media and all oh, the media, oh, fake news, right? We've all heard this. But to a postmodern, I mean, fake news, lying, censorship, come on, how ignorant of you. I'm not lying. I'm just making truth because I can, because I have the power to do so. Oh, now silly people calling me a liar. That's not true. The stars are raining down on me. I know it's not true, but it's the truth. Moving on. Stories trump facts. You can't know stuff, so whatever I think is going on, my story, my narrative that I want to tell, can just poo-poo facts. Facts have to move out of the way for a good narrative or a story. Not going to go too much into this, but I'm sure you guys are thinking stuff and things. And lastly, people knowing more stuff really hasn't turned out so well in history, right? We just figure out more ways to hurt each other and bomb each other and and take each other over, and besides, haven't you heard you can't really know stuff? So why would you try to know stuff? So let's give up on that, man. Stop asking the big questions in life. Let's just be dumb and happy, and coexist. Amen. Pass the basket. We're all done here. No. So <laughs> these are some pretty, pretty bold claims, right? And when you look at them, and when you, when you think about what they're saying, you, you might step aside and say, you know, I man, that looks ridiculous, but there's a part of me that actually has sympathy with some of these things, like I'm drawn to it. And if you're experiencing that, that's because we are marinating in this every day. It has influenced us. It has infected us. And it's, it's really no good. And it's the absolute enemy of, oh, let's say, if God came in the flesh and he said something like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, postmodernism and the declarations of Jesus are like two semi-trucks in the same lane coming head-on, right? Something's going to win and something's going to lose. When Jesus had his famous back and forth with Pilate, 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 by the way, the Roman official who could have him tortured and killed, right? And Pilate was not expecting some random Jewish guy to blow him off. Jesus kind of treated Pilate like he was no big deal. And it bothered Pilate and it intrigued him. So they have this interesting back and forth in John 18 and 19. And finally, when Jesus says he's a king, but his kingdom isn't of this world, you know, things heat up. And he has to explain himself to Pilate. This is what he says. For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world. Remember, Jesus is God. This is Yahweh in the flesh. This is God saying, here's the reason I bothered to come down here. Okay? to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth, another translation says everyone, anyone who's on the side of truth, 
listens to my voice. Dang, not compatible with what we've just read about our postmodern culture, right? Right. Let's look at my favorite source of all time and let's discover what it means, how exactly Jesus is the truth. How does it play out? Let's go to the Mounts' expository. Yay, that my mama got me for Christmas. And let's look at the definition of truth. Here's how he starts out. Perhaps the most common use of the noun aletheia, that's truth, and the two corresponding adjectives is to refer to something that is accurate. In other words, a fact. In an age when truth is all too often shaded to obscure falsehood, there is no group of people who should be more dedicated to speaking the truth forthrightly and living by its standards, don't forget that part, more later, than the followers of Jesus. I've heard it said, you know, even by some well-meaning people that love Jesus and are going to heaven, right? Some of my professors even, that back in Jesus' day, you know, we think of truth as like black and white, this or that, accurate, not accurate. They didn't think of truth that way. They had a broader definition of truth. That's partly true. Truth entails more than just accurate facts, right? But it certainly entails accurate facts. Even in the first century, they wanted to know, did you fix my chariot? Yes or no, (laughs) right? Like, am I going to die of this disease? Yes or no? Like, will you have dinner ready by five? Yes or no? I don't know. Uh, But we want to play weird games with even the concept of truth. Ravi Zacharias, has anybody heard of him? I love Ravi. Born and raised in India. He's as Eastern as you can get. He was talking to this professor one time who was trying to convince him You know, he just talked about truth and objective reality. And the professor said, you're using Western logic. Only Western logic is exclusive and says this or that, either or. He says, Eastern logic is both and. And Ravi said, look, friend, even back home in India, we look both ways before crossing the street because it's either the bus or me. It's not both and. Truth entails accurate fact to the exclusion of what is false. Anthony, you're supposed to be talking about how Jesus is the truth. I know. We're getting there. I promise. Here we go. I want to talk about scientific truth, head truth, facts. I have it in quotes because it's not exactly science. What I'm talking about is everything you know is a fact, right? Accurate, factual truth. And I have it in quotes also because I want to give it kind of a hard time, all right? Because scientific truth is not enough, all right? Apologists and people who are nerdy about apologetics, and I I like apologetics, you know, they make all these different kinds of arguments for God. Here's one. Uh, A lot of time, atheists and people that only believe the material world is, is all that exists, right? They'll say, I don't need God. I believe in science. As illustrated by a great theological work, Nacho Libre. I don't know if you can see that. He's like, we need to pray to the Lord for strength. I don't believe in God. I only believe in science. It's a great movie. And then he baptizes them by surprise. Anyway, so, but this is all over, man. It used to be a huge debate. Like, science has pushed God away, right? Nietzsche said, God is dead and we've killed him. We've moved on. We no longer look at the world in such a way where we need God to explain all these mysteries. We have science, you know? Science has made God unnecessary, don't you know? And I'm going to tell you it has not. It has not. Science isn't even enough to explain the world. I stumbled upon this debate between my favorite Christian nerd, William Lane Craig. Anybody? Dr. Craig? Yay. Okay, two people. He's cool. Trust me. 
He's got a doctorate in philosophy and a doctorate in theology. So he's like the worst person in the world to debate. He's like everyone's nightmare. So in 1998, he's debating a very sharp atheist named Peter Atkins. And Peter Atkins is getting the upper hand. You know, he's getting more and more animated. And finally, he interrupts Dr. Craig, our hero. And he says, Dr. Craig, do you deny that science can account for everything? And Dr. Craig says, yes, I do deny that science can account for everything. And you can see the disbelief on Atkins' face. He's like, what? What do you mean? And Dr. Craig says, well, here's five things. <laughs> science can't account for math and logic. Do you know math is true and logic is true? Well, yeah. Well, you can't prove that with science. How about meta metaphysical truths? What do I mean by that? The fact that I have a mind, and Alex has a mind, and Jimmy has a mind, and I know that everyone in here has a mind. Cannot prove any of that with science. Ethical judgments. Can science show that Hitler was bad and Mother Teresa was good? No. But you feel a feeling of repugnance towards one and honor towards the other. What about beauty and ugliness? Aesthetic judgments. Science can't do anything about that either. And lastly, science itself. You can't prove science with science the same way you can't prove logic with logic. In fact, that brings up an interesting point. Science is based on reason and logic as used by a mind. So even science is based on things science can't prove. Now, apologetics nerds will use this as an open door to argue for the existence of God. This isn't that message, although we do have some apologetics messages coming up, and I am excited. What I want to say about this is that science is real. Science works. Science works because reason and logic work. Reason and logic work because a God made reason and logic to work. So we can apply that, and we look out, and we've discovered all kinds of interesting truths, have we not, about the universe, about the solar system, about the human body. I can't believe it. I'm, I, Sean and Arwen Clinton, God bless them. I'm throwing them under the bus. Uh, they bought me this, like, personal training certification, and part of it is studying, like, human physiology and stuff, and my mind is blown at how complex we are. You wouldn't believe the truths and the facts that I'm having put in this brain about the human body. And it goes all the way down to the level of the atom. Why? Is it fair to say that when Jesus said, I am the truth, he might have meant this kind of truth? I'm going to say yes. Because what is the very first thing that the Apostle John wants us to know about Jesus when he writes his letter? What does he open with? He's, he's the word, right? He's the God who created all this stuff. Check it out. In the beginning was the word, Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Paul echoes this in Colossians 1. For by him all things were created. All things, Paul? Yes, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, for him. He, through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Even things like scientific truths and facts, like two plus two equals four, are because of Jesus. It would be weird to say two plus two equals Jesus. That's just odd. But it is accurate to say two plus two equals four because of Jesus. He built the world in a framework that makes sense. 
All those kinds of truths, all those facts that we can use our minds to discover are thanks to Jesus, the guy that's standing there before Pilate saying, I came into the world to testify to the truth. The same guy that said, I am the truth. Cool, huh? But I don't think this is what he meant. (laughs) Spoiler alert, (laughs) it's true. (laughs) But in the moment when he said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, I don't think he was saying, I am physics. You know, I think it was something deeper than that. So let's move. Let's move from head truth, facts that we can learn and know, to what you might call foot truth. Let's do it. And I mean moral truth. Is there such a thing? Man, we resist that, don't we? Don't people resist that? Haven't we resisted it since the beginning of time? I I mean, I've, I've read a lot of nerdy stuff, man, and sometimes atheists and agnostics, when they're being honest, they say things like, I will do anything not to believe in a God. And the reason is, once I believe in a God, he's God. I have to listen to him. He can tell me what to do. And then I might not be able to do everything I want. Specifically sexually, this keeps coming up. So, moral truth. Is it even a thing? My favorite professor in in, uh, my undergrad, actually, his name was Mark Blocker. He was like yay tall and yay wide. And he's a captain in the highway patrol. And he's a professor, and he's a pastor of a Baptist church. You do not want to mess with this man, right? So he was always kind of feisty. And when he was in his undergrad in the 70s, he, would, he probably would have loved the quote at the beginning of the, of the slideshow, right? He was just into relativism. There's no absolute morality. So Mark Blocker, pa- Pastor Reverend Captain Blocker, had just gotten saved. So he's listening to this guy. And he can't believe this guy's telling him there's no objective morality, there's no moral truth. So he sees that the professor has a great radio that he just bought, so he takes it. (laughs) And the professor says, Blocker, what are you doing? He says, this is a nice radio. I should put it back. Now, I wouldn't have believed that anyone actually did this except I've met (laughs) Pastor Professor Captain Blocker for two classes. He did it, man. He kept that radio for weeks. Until the professor was finally like, look, it's not funny. You can't take my radio. That's just wrong. And he's like, that's what I was waiting for you to say. You can have the radio back. You can live a moral life, quote unquote, without believing in God. I'm not saying that every atheist is an immoral fool, okay? Not even atheists want, they're not stupid just because they're atheists, man. Some of them are real sharp. Like Sam Harris is a bright guy. I don't agree with him, but the dude's brilliant. He does not want to live in a savage, chaotic world. He wants a moral world. But the problem is, when you don't believe in God, you have no basis for having morality. You might be able to be moral, but you've just gotten rid of the reason to be moral. An atheist named Kai Nielsen said this, reason doesn't decide here. The picture I have painted for you is not a pleasant one. Reflection on it depresses me. Bless you for your transparency, Kai. Pure practical reason, even with a good knowledge of the facts, will not take you to morality. This is another apologetics nerd dream, right? When you're in a conversation like this. Because the argument goes like this. If there is a moral law, then there is a moral law giver. The moral law giver we call God. You need God for morality. Let's go back to Mounts. And let's get a truthier definition of truth. The Bible makes moral decisions and and issues imperatives all the time. No problem with that. But here's the truthier definition of truth. 
Truth is not only something that we believe. In other words, we've moved from the head. It's not just facts. It is also something that we are called upon to speak and even to practice. Who's heard the verse from Ephesians, speak the truth in love, right? You know in the Greek that actually says, Jimmy, I bet you know, truthing in love, that's right. We add speak because it's in context, but the Greek actually just says truthing in love. In other words, do truth. Truth is not just something you know, truth is something you do. Sorry, I put you on the spot. Good man, glad you know it. All right, this connection between truth and action, Mounts continues, is found throughout the New Testament. John reminds his readers that those who claim to have fellowship with Christ but continue to walk in darkness, that's why it's foot truth, we're walking, do not live by the truth. There is a close connection between one's knowledge of the truth and godly activity. The two cannot be separated. If you know the truth, you are obligated to do truth. And if you don't, knowing it is not enough, you are not truthful. But is it possible for truth to go past something that you do to something that you are? Do you know that the Bible talks about Jesus this way? Let's look at a a contrast Paul draws in Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, he's looking at the world, everybody who's not under the authority of Jesus, and he's saying, they live this way. And then he says to the church, but you need to live this way. Check out this contrast. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk, live, no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Paul is saying their thinking is wrong. Their hearts are wrong. And this wrong thinking, this wrong way of processing reality is showing up in an immoral lifestyle. Then the contrast. But you, church, did not learn Christ this way. I want to pause here for just a minute. That's not a a mistake. He doesn't say you didn't learn about Christ this way. He doesn't say this isn't what Christ told you. He actually says you didn't learn Christ this way. You know, it's like I've been, you know, under Cameron for five years as a pastor now. If some, somebody else came up to me and they saw that I was acting like a fool, right? I was a poor leader. I was immoral. But they knew Cameron and they knew that Cameron was a good man. In this sense, they would come up to me and they say, hey, kid, is this how you learn Cameron? See how that works? We'll talk about why that was in a minute. But he's making a moral contrast here. And look how he talks about it. You did not learn Christ this way, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. What kind of truth? All kinds of truth. But specifically in this case, moral truth, how you should live, what a virtuous life looks like. In reference to your former manner of life, you should lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, immoral crap, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That is amazing. He's saying, if you want to know what perfect virtue and a perfectly moral life looks like, actually learn Jesus, not about him. And that's because in the first century, the ideal ruler was understood as a living law. It was regarded as best to learn a right way of living from observing the ruler's lifestyle. And in this sense, 
one learned Christ. One was taught by means of him, and the truth could be said to reside in him. When Jesus stood before the crowd and said, I am the way and the truth, probably didn't mean physics. Physics was a good idea. It's cool, God. Thank you. But he could have very well met. If you want to know what absolute moral truth looks like, truth and virtue and truth and a life well lived, it's this guy. Just learn me. Amen? Amen. But there's another deeper level. Moral truth exists as a matter of fact and as a person. Thank you, Anthony. We just said that. Okay, we did, in fact. Moving on. Spiritual truth. This is the big one. In our culture of postmodernism, if you talk about facts, most of the time people will they'll just nod politely, even if they don't like your facts. Why not? They might go as far to say, as someone recently said, I reject your facts, but they'll probably stay polite. <laughs> I heard a chuckle. All right. But if you start talking about moral truth, they get antsy. They might start to say things like, well, that works for you. You know, I'm glad you have opinions on that. You do you, man. You know, just don't tell me I have to do you. Because the minute you say it's an objective standard of truth, then we have a problem. And things get even more hairy if you're going to talk about spiritual truth. You start saying that you have a spiritual answer to the exclusion of anything else. You start using either-or logic, like Rabbi Zechariah said, in this arena, and you've got some problems. I was at Walmart years ago, uh, 2004, way before I moved even to Michigan. Not way before, I moved here in 2005, so about a year before. And we used to stock, you know, the carbonated Sam's Choice waters at the same time every morning. And this very attractive young lady would come in that caught my eye because I was single and like 22. So all of the pretty young ladies were catching my eye. And she would buy the same water every week, peach Melba flavored water. And like none of us knew her name. And even after she introduced herself, we kept calling her Peach Melba because we couldn't remember her name. But one day, I was talking with Peach Melba, <laughs> and I had just given my life back to the Lord, man. I was on fire for Jesus. And she starts telling me about how she is devoted to finding truth. No kidding. And like the reason she was so fit was because part of this new age weird thing that she was doing was that she believed she could find some sort of transcendent truth through perfect physical fitness, right? I was like, I was so intrigued. And I was also very excited because here's someone who is desperately, passionately seeking truth. And I had just given my life back to the Lord. So I said, the only logical thing I could say to think is, man, I found it. I'm glad you're looking, man. I found it. And you know what she did? She laughed at me, man. Like, not a chuckle, not like, oh, like from here, right? Like, it was spontaneous. Like, I had said something truly ridiculous. And it was like I had been audibly smacked. It was really strange. And I just thought, how odd was that? Like, after the encounter, here is someone who is, like, bleeding and sweating to find truth. At least that's what she told me. She's searching for truth. She's looking for it desperately. She's investing time and effort and energy. She's structuring her whole life around it. Somebody says they found it, and she laughs at them? It's okay to look for truth today, but it's not okay to look to buy. You can shop. You can lease, maybe. But don't shop to own, right? The minute you say you actually found it, you go from honorable to ridiculous. The frantic, passionate, desperate searching is applauded, and actually finding it is mocked. Sick but true. And yet... The church is capitulating to that, I think. 
I, so here's something I hate to do, okay? I don't like throwing the whole church under the bus ever. You know, I think that the church is the bride of Christ, and when you insult and make fun of the bride of Christ, the husband has to be bothered a little bit, okay? So I'm not imputing the character of the whole church, but there is this feeling in our culture in churches that have been previously solid that the pressure is too much, the soup is too thick, and they're giving way to compromise. I quoted John MacArthur adversarially a couple weeks ago in my sermon on tongues, but I own a book by him called Why One Way, and I read it and reread it and reread it because it is a booster shot against this culture. And here's what Pastor MacArthur says. Some who call themselves evangelicals are openly insisting that faith alone in Jesus is not the only way to heaven. Some are simply cowardly, embarrassed or hesitant to affirm the exclusivity of the gospel in an era when inclusivity, pluralism, and tolerance are deemed supreme virtues by the secular world. And here is the gut punch that I wish did not seem true. Apparently, the evangelical movement's biggest fear today is that we will be seen as out of harmony with the world. Dang. Avoid saying Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We, I mean, we can believe it, but I mean, don't say it too loud. You might offend someone, you know? Jesus didn't shrink back from saying that. There was all kinds of crazy beliefs in Rome, right? He had to have known how that was going to be received. He said this kind of stuff to the man that would order him to the cross. He never shrunk back. Why? Well, let's look at the truthiest definition of truth, and that will give us a hint. We're moving on. Truth is not only in statements. It's not only something we believe. It's not just something we do. But Paul uses that adjective, truth, to describe God himself. Not only is God true, but Jesus is true as well, full of grace and truth. And if we are his disciples, we will know the truth. John uses the adjective, truth, to denote a spiritual reality about Jesus that is beyond the observable world. People followed Jesus for days in the desert without an osprey backpack full of like those meals that you can like pour boiling water in, you know what I'm saying? Like, no guarantee they were going to eat, nowhere to sleep, and they followed him. Why? They followed him across the biggest lake in the region. You know, they would barely let him get away. They were up early looking for the guy. They left their nets. They left their families. They left their, their jobs. You know, they didn't have welfare, man. You know, this was a dangerous time to be alive, and these people are leaving all their security to follow this one dude. Why? Because he stood up and said, I am algebra. No. <laughs> Thanks for algebra, God, I guess. I mean, some people like it. He certainly embodies that kind of truth, right? Was it because this guy's super moral? No, the world was full of moralizers. I mean, Aristotle and Plato and all those guys had come and gone. You could find a bunch of theories on what it meant to live a good life, even if he embodied what it meant to live the perfect life. Is that why people are just chasing after him? Is that what they were starving for? And I'm gonna say no. It's spiritual truth. People then, just like people now, us and those people who aren't in this building, we are starving, starving for spiritual truth. You don't get together with your coworker and, and, and he asks you how you're doing and you say, well, actually, Bob, I've been staying up at night wondering what the meaning of life is. Quite miserable, actually. Can't sleep. It's like this 
weird terror that I can't quite shake. Do you ever go through that? And it's like, Bob does not want to hear about that. You know, we don't talk about that. But come on, man. Seriously, people have not changed in 2,000 years. It is the cry of the heart of everyone. Everyone. What is this life? Why am I alive? What in the world is a person? Is it special? Do I have any meaning? What happens after I die? And why do I dread death so much? If everybody's done it, why am I so terrified to go through it? And if there is a God, what in the world is he like? People are desperate. They were desperate back in the day. And Jesus is standing in front of them and he's saying, the answer to these questions, this stuff, this cry of your heart, I'm the guy. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. And they got a hint that this is the kind of stuff he was talking about. And they were willing to do anything, man. They'll cross that lake six times because he's offering this. He didn't compromise. Should we? No. Because what do we get to tell people? What does Jesus tell people? They're like, oh, what is this thing called life? And Jesus is like, what is life? Life was my idea. That was something only I had until I decided to share it. And I still want to give you life to the fullest. I want to give you life abundantly. And you might think that your life is mundane and you might be tired and you might be poor. But let me tell you what, when you get a hold of the truth, which is right here, please listen to me, people. I'm going to fill your life with purpose and meaning and passion. I'm going to give you an inheritance. Well, that's impossible. I'm a slave. You trust me. It's going to happen. It's the truth. That's what life is about. What is a person? Do I matter? Do you matter? Can you imagine what Jesus would say? Like, are you kidding me? Do you know who I am? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm God, man. I had to be born and live 33 years on this dirt for you. You know, you stabbed me in the back right after I made you, and I haven't been able to leave you alone. Why do you think that is? It's because you're precious, man. It's because you're valuable. I had to come down here to get you. And you actually haven't seen anything yet. You guys are worried about death. Wait till you see what I do to death. He's like, I know what you did to me. And I know why you're afraid. The Bible says everyone is enslaved by the fear of death. Why is that? Because fear entails punishment. And we know we deserve it. Jesus didn't shy away from that. And he's like, here's my answer to death. Here's some truth for you. I am going to be punished to death. So that after I die, I can undie and come back to talk to you and assure you that you can beat death too. I'm going to beat the pants off of death. Don't worry about death. And I'll tell you what, this life thing that you like, I like it too. You're going to be alive forever. We're going to come back together. We're going to fix this place and we're going to hang out because you're so valuable. I actually made you to be in relationship with me forever because I'm God and I like you. How about that? So... Is there a God? And if so, what's he like? Well, let's let Jesus say it himself. This is the kind of God he is. The kind of God that goes to the people that stabbed him in the back and says, come to me. Man. It happens. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Man, us? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That is the truth. Does that sound like something we should shy away from? Yeah. You think maybe even people that don't think they want to hear that, freaking desperately want to hear that? I think so. But the funny thing about the truth 
is that it demands a response. We've, we've been circling around this encounter between Jesus and Pilate. And you know, the truth stood before Pilate and they had a back and forth, didn't they? Pilate actually had to have a verbal exchange. He got to have a verbal exchange with truth embodied. And it's interesting how this plays out. Let's look at the, the larger picture. Jesus has said, yeah, I'm a king, but my kingdom's not of this world. Otherwise, my followers would be fighting. Let's pick it up from there. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason that I was born, this is God, remember, the reason I came down here and came into the world is to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate, I know you hear me. Your wife has already told you I'm special, right? I am the truth. Do you hear what I'm saying? I know you're intrigued by me. I know you've never met anyone you know, like me. Look in my face. Are you on the side of truth? Do you belong to the truth? Pilate freaks out. He says, what is truth? And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there. He leaves the truth to go and barter with the enemies of the truth. Check this out. I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Do you see what he's doing? He's got the truth right inside. He didn't have the guts to answer the truth and to stick around in the face of truth, but he's not willing to be an enemy of the truth. You know, he kind of wants to be on both sides of the fence. So he's trying to buy a little time maybe to think about the truth. You know, maybe we'll come back to this later. But he spends a little too much time talking to the enemies of the truth. And in the next chapter, we see this. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Pilate sells out the truth and does not respond to it because the enemies of the truth yelled at him. Because they threatened him. Because they were very loud and insistent. So the truth gets thrown right under the bus. And Pilate just washes his hands. That's how his encounter with the truth went. As sure as everything I just told you is true, God is having an encounter with you right now. He's faithful to do it. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He is calling you. He is a searching God. Man, he is persistent. Don't have this kind of encounter with him. Welcome him in. Accept the truth. Guys, it's good. Amen. Here's Pastor Bill.